Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. On the program today, we're starting a very new special series entitled, This is Our God with Dr. Newfeld." We begin our study praying that as a result, you might know and love God even more. Let's begin with a message called, The God That Can Be Known, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Most of the time, as you listen to Back to the Bible, you're going to hear the study of a particular book of the Bible, such as study of Philippians or Galatians, or we might hear a study of a section of a book, such as a study of Romans 5 to 8 or Matthew 5 to 7, so forth. Careful verse-by-verse study with application to our lives is our bread and butter. But sometimes I might simply do a character study of a person in the Bible, like Abraham or David, learn a life lesson from their lives. And occasionally, and this is one of those occasions, it's beneficial for us to do a topical study in which we will examine one of the great doctrines of the Bible. And when we do so, we need to examine as much of the Bible as possible, finding everything we can in the entirety of Scripture that relates to a topic the Bible is interested in. It is, if you will, allow me the analogy, stepping back from the trees and examining the forest. And so for the next three weeks, I want to scour the Bible to gain a proper doctrine of God. Imagine that. We're going to try to study God. And before we ask how such a thing is even possible, let's answer a prior question. Why is it so important to study God? I want to begin with a quote from a man named A.W. Tozer, who in the last century wrote a book which I think is one of the great classics. The name of the book, The Knowledge of the Holy. And here's how the Christian and Missionary Alliance pastor opened his book. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. She can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. Were we able to know exactly what our most influential leaders think about God today, we might be able with some precision to foretell where the church will stand tomorrow. Now, if Tozer is right, then nothing is of greater importance than what we think when we think about God. Then I can hardly overestimate the importance of our study. But is Tozer right? Would it be fine to have a bit of healthy diversity, shall we say, in our thinking about God? What would be so bad if one of us thought one thing about God and another thought something else? What's wrong with simply saying, that's who God is to me, stressing my personal subjective view of God? Well, for what it's worth, Tozer felt that the first effect of thinking wrongly about God is that we lose a sense of majesty. 
and we dull our reflex of worship. But let's not ask what Tozer thinks. What does God think about what we should think? How important does God think it is when we think about him? Well, consider the Ten Commandments. The very first command God ever gave Israel, or for that matter, the first command for the entire human race was this, you shall have no other gods before me. That's recorded in Exodus 20, verse 3. The command means that God, that is, the one God that exists, will not tolerate the worship of other gods. He demands exclusive worship, or all worship is to be restricted to the one true God. The second command for the human race is as follows. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And then later in Deuteronomy 4, 15 to 16, when further elaborating on the command, gives us this explanation. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure. See, it is clear, as we will see from this study, God is not to be compared to anything. But also from the context, the reason God so abhors the making of an idol is because it does not depict him as he is. God despises a concept of himself that is an incorrect depiction of who he is. He simply will not tolerate it and on numerous occasions describes himself as jealous. Jealous that we should love or worship something that is not himself. So to put the matter plainly, what you like to think of God as is really not valuable at all. When I hear someone say, I always like to think of God as and then you fill in the rest of the sentence, this is an indicator that you're in love with your own thoughts and not with God himself. And it's right here that we find the chief problem in our thinking. John Kelvin said that the human heart is an idle factory. We have a 24-hour sweatshop, one that never stops, one that produces one idolatrous concept of God after the other. And God, whose first two commands to the human race are an ominous warning never to do such a thing, still warns us today. But here's the problem. How can the human heart or mind ever conceive of so great a thought as God? If God is infinite in his being, and unlike all other things, how can we who are finite, always beginning from the perspective of the finite, even begin to conceive or think about such a being as God? Charles Misner is an American physicist and also a specialist in general relativity. Speaking about Albert Einstein and his view of God, Misner, from his own experience with Einstein, said the following. He said, Einstein had so little use for organized religion, although he strikes me as a basically religious man. He must have looked at what preachers said about God and felt they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined, and they were just not talking about the real thing. And this, I think, is another byproduct of the contemporary love affair with an idolatrous conception of God. It's the dumbing down of the nature of God. It's the making of God into a being that is palatable with what we would like, what we would imagine. The outcome of this thinking is that the kind of God we end up talking about is not a God that looks even remotely interesting 
and does not appeal to anyone who has even a basic concept of majesty. So where do we begin? I want to begin with Isaiah the prophet. Why? For one, Isaiah had a passionate hatred of all things idolatrous. Furthermore, he provides us with an imagery intended to show how mindless, simplistic, and contradictory the very notion of idolatry is. I'm reading Isaiah 44, 13 to 17. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into a figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. And he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over half he eats meat and roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you're my god. That's a passage rich in irony. But Isaiah has put his finger on the issue. When we worship idols, we're not worshiping God or another God. We're actually worshiping ourselves and our abilities in constructing the kind of God that we have. It's utilitarian. We use what we need to cook and heat the house and what we need to satisfy our worship, but we are in control, and in the end, it's pure lunacy. Because in the end, when the day of trouble is upon you, this God is incapable of doing anything at all. So much for the gods of stone and the gods of our imaginations. So much for the gods that fail to interest those who look for what is true and who long to gaze at infinite majesty. And when we come back, we're going to ask ourselves if it is possible to get a true vision of the one true God. In our introduction, we begin to see the importance of knowing the one true God, but not just what we think of Him. We need to know what God reveals to us about Himself through the Word in order to get an accurate portrait of His glory. How critical this is in our day when so many are confused and mistaken about the nature of God. Stay with us after the break as Dr. Neufeld will explain how our God is one who can truly be known by all. Thanks for listening. Have you had a chance to download the Back to the Bible Canada mobile application released this fall? Well, you can now access all of our radio programs right from your mobile phone anytime and anywhere. With the launch of our mobile app, it's easier than ever to listen, download, share, and so much more. Plus, you can read Dr. Neufeld's weekly blog, watch ministry videos, and connect with us on social media. Get our free app on the Apple or Google Play Store. And if you have any further questions, just call us at 1-800-663-2425. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Neufeld. We noticed Isaiah's mockery of those who worship idols. But Isaiah also opens our eyes to see the problem we immediately face when we want to get a picture of the God who exists. I'm reading Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
I suppose another way of putting that would be to say that the greatest thought we have ever had regarding God falls far short of the most basic insight we can have of God. And it's not just Isaiah who has this insight. Psalm 145, which is a psalm of David, contains verse 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Paul said something very similar in Romans 11.33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Given that all my thoughts begin with a finite frame of reference, and given that God in his essential nature is infinite, I'd have to assume that whatever it is that I might learn of God would in some respect fall short of God as he is. I must confess at the outset that my attempt to study God will never be able to be such that I'll be able to get my mental arms around him. Now, from that, several things come to mind. The first of them has to do with the assumption, therefore, that when I study God, I will learn things about him that I'm going to find difficult and some things that from my finite perspective, I might even find objectionable. If we are never surprised or overwhelmed with awe or contradicted in our thoughts, or if we never find ourselves in over our head in our study, well, that in itself should give us a sure understanding that we're not studying God at all, but merely rehearsing the idolatrous ideas we already treasure about the God of our own imaginations. But more needs to be said. Second, Simply saying that we cannot know God exhaustively does not mean that there is nothing we can know about God. When David said in Psalm 145 that his greatness is unsearchable, he's already parted the curtain and told us something about what we will discover when we study God. We will be studying greatness. It's just that the amount and nature of greatness will leave us breathless with the knowledge that we simply can't grasp all of it. So what part of greatness can we understand? Or what part of power or wisdom or truth or any of the other qualities of God can we get a handle on? Is it simply enough to say that God is great and then leave it at that? Well, I think not. Jeremiah the prophet said the following, and I'm reading Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Now from this, it's clear that God longs for us not only to know him, but the idea of boasting in the fact that we know him means that for us, to know him is the absorbing passion of our lives. Even though it is true that what we do know about God is but a small fraction of all that is true about God. Nevertheless, we are invited to know him. But how can we know him when, when the highest thought that we could think about him is vastly below who he is? And the biblical answer is that God has condescended to reveal himself to us. It was Kelvin who said that God in so speaking lisps with us as nurses are wont to do with little children. Put in plain English, he meant that when God tells us about himself, he uses language that is adapted to our understanding. He reveals himself to us accurately to be sure, and yet he has found a way to do so in a way that we can understand. 
You know, I think we can all identify with that. We communicate in one way with a four-year-old child and quite in another way if we're speaking with a 50-year-old scientist. The way we learn to communicate is appropriate to age and understanding. I think this is an appropriate image. What God tells us is not all that can be known, for we are not capable of grasping that. But he does tell us what can be known and what he tells us is true. See, at this point, it's appropriate to ask whether the knowledge that we have of God is objective knowledge or subjective knowledge. Let me try to explain what I mean. If I were to describe myself to you, I might begin by saying, well, I'm five foot nine and I have graying hair. And when you meet me, you'd be able to check that out. I could stand up against a wall with a measuring rod and you could find out whether what I said about my height can actually be objectively verified. See, that's called objective knowledge. It doesn't depend on subjective opinion. It's true of me regardless of how you perceive me to be. But let's say I told you I'm a gentle and loving man. But along the way, you meet someone else who says, well, that's not quite right. He's often impatient, and sometimes he's far more distracted than loving. Others might disagree with that assessment and give their perspective. And the point I'm getting at is that if I tell you I'm a nice guy, that statement is not objective. That's a subjective statement. Now, understand that when God communicates to us that he is love, that he is wise and all-knowing, that he never changes, that he's the sovereign king, and that he rules in righteousness— all these things tell us something about God. And what is it that we should hear when God communicates these things? Are these objective truths or subjective ones? When God says that he's love, is that like saying John Newfeld is five foot nine, or is it like saying John Newfeld is a nice guy? The Bible answer is that when God says he is love, it's like saying John Newfeld is five foot nine. All of God's attributes, the characteristics that describe him, the essential properties of who God is, are objectively revealed. God, who fully and comprehensively understands all things, also fully and comprehensively understands himself. He is under no illusions as to who he is and as such communicates fully and truly and objectively about his essential nature. But what does God insist on communicating to us? Why reveal himself to us at all? In Psalm 27, David gives us an insight into what this is all about. Verse 4 says, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. Or listen to how David expresses it in Psalm 17, verse 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Or Psalm 42, verse 1. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Or Psalm 139, verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Have you noticed that in all of these passages and in countless others, to see God and to know Him and to understand Him and to interact with Him is the very thing that our souls need and crave for. It's the only thing that will ultimately satisfy us. We were created for worship, and it is useless to deny it. Human beings must worship. It is essential to our humanity. 
And so in order to fill this need for worship, well, sometimes we worship idols or human personalities like movie stars and sports figures, or we worship the creation, or we might even worship ourselves or the ideals of our culture. But in all of this, the soul is left empty with a deep, aching sense that something is wrong. But once we begin to encounter the God who is, not as we want him to be, but once God condescends to reveal himself to us, the soul is satisfied and the soul cries out, how precious is this, how my soul longs for this, how beautiful this is, this is what I was created for. When God reveals himself to us, it's not for knowledge alone. It's with the understanding that we cannot be complete until we have encountered not an idol, but the God who truly exists and the God who can be known. John, this is the beginning of a great series that we're all looking forward to. But let me start by asking you this question. Do you think this is one of the challenges for the church today, that we completely underestimate who God is? Yeah, I think we not only underestimate God, I think the church has not been talking about God. I mean, so much of our conversation has been around our problems and solutions that we need to find, and we're constantly human-centered in our message. It's overwhelming to me to think that God hasn't occupied our language, our thoughts, our conversations. Everything that we seek to do should be God-oriented because everything's about God. So I would like to uh, hopefully use this series to remind us that we are about God and that God is at the center of our attention. So I hope that we're going to be challenged. I hope that we're going to be overwhelmed. I hope that uh, people will actually order this series and, and, and play it back again and try to get a new grasp on the being and the nature and the glory of God. That's our aim. Are you looking forward to the things we'll learn about this great God of the universe? This has been a great beginning to our series on the attributes of God, and I hope it has inspired you to keep the center of your life focused around a passion to know Him more and more, for our knowledge of Him can never be exhausted. Let's rejoice in the fact that an infinitely majestic and holy God has condescended to reveal to us who He is in a way that we can understand. Well, be sure to listen tomorrow as we continue this series, This Is Our God, with Dr. John Newfeld. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Well, we hope you've enjoyed listening to our very first message of this series, This Is Our God. Knowing who God is, as revealed in the scriptures, is one of the most important aspects of the Christian faith. The ideas we entertain about God, whether right or wrong, have lasting impact on more than just our head knowledge. It will determine the trajectory of the way we live. Over the next three weeks, we'll continue to discover more in-depth the attributes of God. But we want you to have the opportunity to have this great series on CD as well. This month, order This Is Our God on CD for just $18, including shipping and handling. We pray that these teachings will inform and inspire you to make your passion in life the pursuit of knowing God more and more. As A.W. Tozer wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So order your CD today by calling one 800 663 
1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit us at backtothebible.ca.